I don't matter. Repeat after me, wherever you are, in the car, on the treadmill, no matter where it is, repeat after me, I don't matter. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you again for listening. Man, am I ever honored that you would give me this kind of time in your day and in your schedule. And I'm just super excited, super glad to be with you. If you've not listened to the last episode, my interview with my good friend Josh Carson, I would suggest that you go listen to that interview on preaching. My goodness, did he ever deliver a masterpiece of a message at North American Youth Congress this past week. And if you have not heard it, you need to buy the drop card. It was incredible and so in between interviews or should i say when we're not doing interviews here on the podcast one of the big topics that keeps just coming back up again and again and again is how to increase capacity it's a subject that's really taken a life of its own here on the podcast and the episodes that deal with it have have outperformed what i ever could have possibly have dreamed and so clearly it's an idea it's a concept that's striking a nerve with so many fellow leaders. And God kind of began to deal with my heart as I was reading a story from 2 Kings 4, the story of the widow and the oil. And since it's a concept we've talked about before, I'm not going to reopen the whole story. But if you have not heard the other podcast episodes, the essence of it is this. There's this widow. Her husband has recently died. She has two small little boys, and they're about to be sold into slavery. And all she has in her house, they've got no more money. They got nothing. All she has in her house was a single jar of oil. And Elisha's walking by and she runs out onto her porch of her house and she cries out to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And now my sons are about to be sold. And Elisha says, what do you have in your house? And she goes, just this jar of oil. And Elisha gives her this strange instruction. He says, go get more jars. Go get more oil pots. And so that's what she did. She went, she got more jars. She brought them all into her house, lined them all up on the kitchen table with her boys. And she poured out the oil that was in her jar into these other empty jars. And God miraculously multiplied this oil. And what is so interesting about this story is that once all the jars were full, this miracle stopped flowing. And the general thesis of the story is this. The miracle is the Lord's, but the capacity is your responsibility. The miracle is the Lord's, but the capacity, that's your responsibility. See, God's going to do what only he can do. There's some stuff in your life. There's some stuff in your ministry and your leadership and the things that God has called you to do that only God can actually do himself. God will provide the increase. God will provide the revival. He will provide the requisite power. He'll Whatever it is that's needed that only God can provide, the stuff that only comes from his sovereignty and his power and his holiness, God is going to give that. He will because he's good. But the extent to which we receive That depends on our capacity. 
So what we've got to do as leaders is we have to increase capacity. So as I've been thinking about this idea, I've been asking myself this question. What types of jars do I need to bring to God? If like the woman, you know, that that was in need, if like her, I've got to bring God more jars so that I can see his miracle and his power flow in my life. Well, what are those jars? And we've talked about all kinds of things. We've talked about time. We've talked about leadership. We've talked about your personal productivity. We've talked about your emotional health and emotional intelligence. But today is going to be different. The kind of jar we're going to be talking about today is not one that we really have, you know, explored deeply until now. Today doesn't have anything to do with your calendar, your habits, the books you read. Today is all about your heart. It's about what drives you. It's about the, you know, the the emotions that you bring to the table. It's a jar that I believe is absolutely fundamental for those who desire to see the hand of God move in their life, their leadership, and their ministry especially if you aspire and desire to see the supernatural, to see the glory of God on display. In my own life, this jar that we're going to talk about today, it was a game changer. It absolutely transformed my life. But one thing I've discovered is that it's not a once and done. It's a jar that I'm going to have to bring back to God again and again and again and again and again. But when I finally gave it to God, when I finally got this jar in into God's presence. That very first time I found, I discovered that the gifts of faith, miracles, and the anointing of God opened up in my life. So you ready for it? You ready? You ready for that, for me to tell you what that jar is? Here's what it is. It's the jar of a crucified life. The jar of a crucified life. Now, now, before you turn me off, before you, you know, you go to another podcast and you're like, I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm already crucified with Christ. I've been born again. Maybe you're like, I don't, you know, and insert the name of vice or sin here. I don't do that anymore. I'm not involved in that anymore. And to be honest, I, that's great. I'm glad, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the things you used to do you used to do or you used to be a part of BC, you know, before Christ. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about taking the idea of a crucified life to an entirely brand new level, moving beyond sin, getting to the place where you realize that you don't matter. That's the kind of crucified life that I'm talking about. The type where Everything in you has died with Christ. Getting to the place where you realize that you you don't actually matter. If you want to increase your capacity as a leader, you have to give up wanting to matter. And this is going to be one of the most difficult, most countercultural things that you will ever do as a leader. Let's be honest, everyone, everyone wants to matter. 
Everyone wants to feel important. Everyone wants to be significant. Especially because if you're a millennial like me, you're under 36. One of the things the culture has drummed into our head is that everyone's special and we're all unique. Low self-esteem is pushed as like the great enemy of the good. And anyone now, especially in the 21st century, that doesn't acknowledge your specialness is a hater. They hate you. They got that haterade. They need to be crushed. They need to be called out. They need to be opposed. And since we're products of this culture, we carry the culture into church into leadership and into ministry life. And if we don't call it out and challenge it and identify it for what it is, it will become indelibly part of the culture of our leadership, our ministry, and our church. And we will live out a cultural identity as opposed to a biblical identity. See, we're filled in our culture with the desire to be seen to be heard and to be appreciated. And I mean, you all know the studies. There, there are studies where they, they talk to um, uh, several thousand teens and young adults in the United Kingdom. You know, what would be the most important thing for you? Would it be to, would it to uh, be famous or to be wealthy? And everyone chose, almost without fail, to be famous because fame is the new currency of the day. You know, notice me, see me perform, affirm me. Right, And it'd be easy to go at that and take that down. But here's the fly in the ointment. Here's the complicating factor to this desire to be seen is on top of this cultural conditioning to be affirmed is an innate God-given desire for purpose. And that's a good thing. The desire for our lives to matter for something larger than ourselves, for our human existence to be more than just, you know, survival till we die, but to make a difference and have a reason to get up in the morning. And it's good to feel that way because you were made for more, which incidentally is a fantastic book by Brian Kinsey. You should all get it and read it. You were made for more. God's gifted you for more. God has wired you for worship and for purpose. But what happens when our cultural programming and our God-designed wiring collide or become confused. Let your mind explore that for a second. What is the end result of confusing the desire to make a difference with the desire to be seen making a difference? What's the end result of that? What happens when you walk into serving and leading still holding on to the grand cultural narrative that we're all special and you need to see how special I am in order for me to feel good about myself. What's the result of that? What will happen when we approach life leadership and serving others with that attitude? Well, uh, you'll, you'll do okay. You'll be fine. In fact, you may even do great. There's a good chance you'll do great. Probably wasn't the answer you were thinking, was it? But it's the truth. 
because you'll always be reminding people of how special you are or how successful you are. And if you're slick, probably in very subtle ways. And because people naturally love to follow successful people, because we live in a fame and celebrity driven culture, they'll want to be around you because you're cool. And as long as you exercise enough charm and, you know, you throw a bone to the people every once in a while so they can feel recognized and you can remind them that it's actually all about them when really it's all about you because the key is to making people feel special, you'll do amazing. And you can go for years like this. Maybe even your entire leadership and ministry career and you will climb the proverbial ladder because on the political side of things, You'll always be a player and on the lips of people. You'll know how to keep your name out there. You'll make great tactical moves in your church or in your district or because you'll hone your assessment skills to this fine point. And you'll know how to kind of make a splash at all the right moments. And so if your goal is to be seen and to be noticed and to be heard and to be loved, you're going to do fantastic. You'll be amazing, but there's one area you're going to struggle in. There's one component of ministry that you're not going to thrive in. You may be able to sing well. You may learn great communication skills. You may be able, if you're Um, If you're really smart and you study hard and, of course, God in his grace and his mercy is still going to use you to a degree, you'll be able to come up with great thoughts and preach well. But there's one area, one component of ministry that will be absent in your life and not leveraged to its fullest extent. You will not have capacity in this level, and that is operating in the supernatural. Because after all, I mean, that's what this is all about, isn't it? The part of the ministry where the glory of God is on display. And people are experiencing his power. Miracles happen. Revival breaks out. The word of God goes forth with anointing. And it strikes the heart of people. And there is mass repentance. There's mass conversion. I'm talking about the types of moves of God where your jaw drops, where people in the 21st century experience what happened in the first century church, the stuff that makes an unbelieving world go, whoa, what is that? What is going on over there? I'm talking about the component of ministry where God uses you in the gifts of the spirit that are absolutely undeniable where the testimony of his word is on full display and there's mass conversions and people receiving the Holy Spirit in large numbers and tremendous rapid growth and revival. And ultimately, I'm assuming this is what we're all pushing for. Is it not? To build the kingdom of God, to function at a level of faith and anointing where after the word is communicated and preached and Jesus is lifted up, The word is confirmed with signs following the testify of the truth of God that was just proclaimed. The end result is many people discipled in large numbers of people being saved. And if you want to have that kind of ministry, if you want to see the stuff happen that we read about in the pages of Scripture, 
You've got to give God more jars. Not just your calendar. Not just your bookshelf. You got to give him the jar of a crucified life. You got to realize you don't matter. You do not matter. In our culture, being seen and noticed for your value is the way to become successful. Fame is an end unto itself. But in the kingdom of God, everything is countercultural. Everything is upside down. And if you want to matter for something bigger than yourself, you have to realize that you don't matter. You can't matter anymore. You have to give up the desire to be noticed or seen or applauded by others. Look, nowhere in Scripture are we told or commanded to seek fame, to seek our own glory, to build our own brand, a name for our, ourselves. In fact, anytime I read of that behavior in Scripture, it's not described particularly well. In Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21 says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. You catch that verse or verses? Sandwiched in between sorcery, impurity, sexual immorality is selfish ambition. Whoa. Sandwiched in between wild parties and drunkenness and rage is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is to be self-seeking. Literally, this is from Vine's Expository Dictionary from blueletterbible.org. Thank you, Josh Carson, for the recommendation. Selfish ambition is seeking to win followers. It's to be a hireling, a desire to put oneself forward. Philippians 2.3 doubles down on this idea and says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let nothing be done. Nothing in your life, nothing in leadership, nothing in ministry, nothing nothing done towards influencing others. Let it be done while seeking to win followers, seeking your own glory, seeking your own ambition, putting yourself, let nothing you do be putting yourself out there, putting yourself forward. Let it not be done for you at all. James chapter 3, 14 through 16 says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The idea of selfish ambition is so against the kingdom that if it's in your heart, it's like you're lying against the truth. As apostolics, as spirit-filled people, we uphold the truth. We are all about this idea of the truth. When we speak of the truth, we're talking about the totality of the apostolic experience, from the theology we believe to the values we proclaim. But if you have selfish ambition and self-seeking in your heart, the scripture says you're lying against that truth. 
This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Dr. Seagraves, in his commentary on the book of James, says, The origin of iniquity in Lucifer reveals that the essence of sin is to be absorbed with oneself. Satan is the chief proponent of unrestrained self-expression. My goodness, does that not sound like our culture? And he continues, whereas the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love other people. For Satan and the demons, the highest value is to love and promote oneself. Ouch. Honestly, does does that not sound like our culture to promote oneself, to seek after followers? Hello, social media to gather a following, to be noticed for what one does, to be affirmed and your identity cultivated through the likes and the hearts and the shout outs of other people. It's self-seeking, it's selfish ambition, and it has nothing to do with the gospel and with the building of the kingdom of God. So how in the world do we deal with this desire? How do I deal with this ingrained desire of both my sinful nature and the cultural programming of the world that I'm a part of that tells me this is what I need to do in order to be successful in all areas of my life. Well, we got to look at the Bible because the same, the same Bible that calls this behavior out and identifies it for what it is, is also the same text that lets us know how we can escape it. Galatians 2.20 The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In essence, the Apostle Paul is saying, it's not me anymore who's living. It's not me anymore who's living in these bones. That guy's gone. That guy got knocked down off of his horse on his way to Damascus to mess up the lives of a whole bunch more Christians. That guy was baptized. That guy is gone. And the person who is now before you, it's not Paul. It's Jesus in Paul. I'm dead. The person you now see before you is is Christ living in me and Christ living through me. And then he doubles down again in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. He's speaking about the results and the impact of being baptized into Christ, which incidentally, just for free, is why baptism is about more than going public. It's about more than symbolically identifying with Jesus. It's the putting to death of our old self. Because in Romans 6, 11 Here's what the Apostle Paul says, as a result of being baptized in Jesus' name, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul believes so strongly in the transformation of the new birth, of the power of the Holy Ghost, of the authority of Jesus' name when it's used by faith in water baptism, believed so strongly that he considered himself dead to sin. 
dead to his old life. Even the person he was before he was born again, that guy's gone. So here, here's how we deal. Here's how we deal with this desire for fame, this desire to be noticed, this desire to be affirmed that limits us from experiencing God's power and God's anointing. We are to consider ourselves as dead. We give God the jar of a crucified life. See, under sin, we were chained to our desires. We were powerless. To those chains, we were slaves to sin. We did what our sinful desires wanted us to do, and there's nothing we could do to overcome it. But because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and my identification with that death, burial, and resurrection through faith, because of his grace, I have been set free. I'm now untethered to sin and its chains. I'm now dead to sin, dead to the desires and the predispositions of a culture that's far from God. I'm, I'm dead to the old me. In the old me was selfish ambition and the old me was self-promotion. And that's just what I did because that's who I was. The old me wanted to be seen. The old me wanted to be heard. The old me tied not only my success to my identity, but also the recognition for my successes to my identity. It's not enough just to be complimented. I've got to find a way to let others know that I've been complimented so I can create this eternal circle of affirming feedback. But that guy's not alive anymore. He's dead. So in the context of what we're talking about today, what, what, what's that look like? What does it mean to be dead to selfish ambition and self-seeking? Well... Um, what's a dead person like? Look, I know, I know we just took probably one of many unexpected turns thus far in the podcast, and this is the most probably unexpected turn. And I know it's kind of dark, but I want you, if you could indulge me with this little journey now for the next few moments, what is a dead person like? Well, no, number one, Dead people don't don't care what they look like. A dead person doesn't doesn't care what they look like. Now I, I don't know what it's like where you're from um, in Ontario because I know this is not the same way it's done all across Canada. But in Ontario we have something called a wake. We have wakes, and before the um, before the funeral, these are open casket viewings in a funeral home for people to come by and they pay their last respects. And they're called wakes. It's a weird name, I know, just in case, maybe, I guess. Um, not too sure, but it's called, it's called a wake. And so the person is just there in this viewing room, and friends and family file in and come and look at their dead body to pay their last respects. And uh, I've been to lots of these you know, wakes before. And every single person in the coffin, they just lie there the whole time. At a funeral or at a wake, the person in the coffin isn't like, you know what, this is awkward, but I actually hate this outfit. I hate this outfit. And, and uh, I totally would have picked a different outfit. 
So if we could just put, if we could just call a call a timeout, we call an audible here for a second. Um, if we could get the guy from the basement uh, dressing all of the other dead bodies to help a brother out and and change my tie because I I wouldn't be caught dead pun intended everyone I wouldn't be caught dead in this time. No, he never says that. They never say that in the cut in the casket. They they don't they don't care how they look because they'd be dead. They're they're gone. They don't care about how they look because they're dead. Their outfit doesn't matter. Their fashion choices don't matter. How other people consider their appearance doesn't matter because they're dead. So here's the obvious question. What would you do if you no longer cared about how you looked? What, what would you do if how you looked was not something that you worried about. If you weren't worried about, let's make it more practical, managing your status and cementing your celebrity within your circle or within your group. What if you weren't worried about getting the credit? What if you weren't worried about constantly checking Facebook and Instagram so that you could compare your life and your status to other people? So you could either criticize them for not having a good life, or you could criticize them for having too good of a life that you find too ostentatious. What if, what if you just stopped worrying about how you looked in comparison to others? Because dead people don't care about those things. Imagine what you could do. Imagine what you could do with all of that mental and emotional energy you spend on trying to be seen, noticed, and accepted. If you could just redirect that towards something that is more productive and that matters more for eternity and that could make a much greater impact on the world, imagine what you could do with all of that energy. Hey, here's another thing I've discovered helping my dad out in my local church with, you know, different funerals since we are in this very dark place right now of thinking about what dead people are like, dead people aren't concerned with failure. It's kind of like the first one, they don't care about how they look, but we're going to drill down a little bit more. Dead people aren't concerned with failure. This is horrible. But um, I saw a video of some funeral fails don't act like you've never watched a fail video before because we, we all have. There's no other way they could get like 9 billion views on some of those videos. There's more people that have watched that video than are on the planet Earth. That means we've watched it at least twice. So there was this video of a funeral where the pallbearers are carrying the casket down the street. They're having like a parade and they're going to take him, take this guy to the graveyard. And one of the pallbearers dropped the casket which to me is like, oh my goodness, the worst thing ever. I cannot imagine. But he dropped the casket and it was a cheap casket and it just, it broke in half. And the dead guy fell out of the casket. Like this is, it was the worst funeral procession ever. I mean, you total failure. People were screaming. They were hollering the guy that was carrying the casket at his hands over his face and just walked out of frame, probably got in his car and drove home. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not coming back. No one's going to ever see me again. I'm sure it was horrifying for the family, horrifying for the pallbearers. 
But do you know that there was one person that day who didn't care at all? One person. One person who did not care about what had just happened. You know who that was? Of course you do. It was the dead guy. Everyone is flipping out. But there's one guy who could care less, and it's the guy laying on the sidewalk. This whole thing was focused on him. All eyes were on him. Even before he fell on the road, everything was about him. He was, from the moment the service began, the center of attention, and he didn't care. He was totally tuned out to the opinions of other people. So here's another obvious question. What would you do if you no longer would let yourself be controlled by the fear of failure? What if you no longer would allow your mind to be controlled by the fear of failure? What would you do if when all eyes are on you, you were dead to the fear of making a mistake? I'm not talking about a desire for excellence. I'm not talking about wanting to do well because of the weight of the responsibility of the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about trying to bring God glory or wanting to make sure you do it in a way that brings honor to his kingdom. That's healthy. Awareness of your own fallibility is healthy. Awareness of the weight of your words and actions upon the lives of others is healthy. I'm not talking about the concern of wanting to get it right in a way that honors God. I'm talking about the fear of the shame of looking stupid. When the fear of failure has more to do with you and how you are perceived by others and has very little to nothing to do with letting others down, a fear that is completely focused on self and not focused on those that you are responsible for. See, the underbelly of this desire to matter is really fear. It's, it's a fear of not being seen, fear of not being noticed, or being noticed for all of the wrong things. Being noticed for looking dumb, looking stupid, making a mistake that makes you mocked or makes your, your reputation take a hit. But when you're dead, none of this matters. When you're dead, you don't matter. When you're dead, you're not thinking of yourself at all. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, an incredible passage of scripture. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This verse applies to way more than salvation. This is about way more than the salvific experience because the operative phrase of this verse is whoever loses his life for my sake, the sake of Jesus and all that it entails, not just the washing away of our sins, not just the redeeming of our soul from eternal judgment, but everything that is for his sake. And Jesus said the key to gaining life in him was losing whatever was yours. That if you want, if you want to follow him, if you want to be a part of the kingdom that he is building, if you want to be a part 
of the thing that is shaking the world and saving people, if you want to be part of an eternal purpose, you've got to crucify your old life, deny yourself, follow Jesus, and be willing to lose everything that you are and that you desire for his sake. That's the only way to gain life. See, there's a propensity in all of us. The reason why we struggle with this idea, the reason why the awkwardness is present probably for you as you listen to this when I say the words, you don't matter. It's because there's a propensity in all of us to think of ourselves more highly than we should. There is, because of our culture, because of our sinful nature, there's a desire to want to think about ourselves as being more valuable, more important, more special than what we should. And here's the thing that I've realized. I need the kingdom more than the kingdom needs me. Look, I want to be honest. I, I've come to the table with the attitude in the past that said, you know, God needs me. I'm important. I'm gifted. If people would just see my gifts and talents, if I, if, you know, hey, 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 look, look, look at me over here. If, if you could just know how anointed and how talented and, and how capable I am, then, then I would be able to, to really do something around here. And, and because God, you know, God needs me, everyone. But the reality is what I have learned painfully is that I need to be used by God more than God actually really needs to use me. The culture we live in wants to tell us that we're all special and Western culture's hyper-individualism is nowhere close to being a biblical idea. But I have discovered that I only can truly find myself when I lose myself in Christ. I'm a tiny cog in a very big machine. The church was founded over 2,000 years ago and it was doing fantastic before I got there. And should the Lord tarry, it's going to be fine after I'm gone. Because I gain and am blessed by Jesus, allowing me to find purpose in him more than what I could ever contribute to his kingdom with my meager talents. Now, does this mean that God doesn't call people? That God doesn't gift them or use them? That God, you know, even doesn't elevate them to places of massive influence? No, of course not. God does all of those things. He calls people. He gifts them. He uses them. And he elevates them to tremendous places of influence. Of course he does. Does this mean I shouldn't be secure in my calling? No, you should be. You should be bold. You should be confident. You should trust that God has gifted you by the Holy Ghost. You should live confident in the idea that God has shaped your life and your personality with traits that are going to make a difference. But never forget, the church belongs to Jesus. The church is his. The kingdom is his. You're a servant in the kingdom. Paul used the word slave. We are slaves of Christ. This is not our kingdom. This is not our world. It belongs to Jesus. 
they're not even our gifts, really. They're his. It's his gifts, his power that he gives to us to get to use. You need this more than it needs you. If you don't serve with the right spirit or if you disqualify yourself through sin, don't think that God is not able to raise someone else up from another place. Every single one of us is dispensable. Look at John the Baptist. Look at all he did leading up to Jesus. And then when Jesus arrived on the scene, Jesus completely eclipsed him. And John went to prison and later died a martyr's death, an unglorious martyr's death alone. It's his kingdom. None of this is about you. None of this is about me. It's always about Jesus. It's always about others that Jesus is trying to save, redeem, and disciple. You're probably thinking, how in the world will this increase my capacity? When I started putting this idea together, that was the big question. When I, when I felt God directing my mind to talk about this all the way back in June, I began to sketch this episode out. I was like, okay, God, you got to direct my mind. Here, if this is what if we're talking about capacity I have to answer that question when I when I talk about the jar of a crucified life. How in the world does this affect my capacity as a leader? And as I begin to think and as I begin to pray, as I begin to search the scriptures, it has everything to do with capacity in a spiritual kingdom. Because practically, number one, real growth, real impact is fraught with inherent risk. If you want to make a difference, there's risk involved. And if you're constantly thinking about yourself, you'll never take the jump. If you're constantly worried about failure, you'll never take the jump. Some things will only be gained if you go all in. If you're driven by fear, you're always going to have one foot on the brake, always looking for an out, holding something back just in case. And as a result, you'll never reach your truest potential. You will never reach your true capacity as a leader because some things you've got to forget about yourself and go all in and not worry about the risk, not worry about the fear, not worry about the failure if it's ever going to happen. Number two, realizing you don't matter is liberating. Trust me on this. Realizing you don't matter is the most liberating idea because when you realize you actually don't matter, and that you don't need to be seen, you don't need to be heard, you don't need to be hearted, liked, followed, or affirmed by a crowd. You stop worrying about things like ego. Looking good, impressing others, pride dies. Here's what I've learned, number three. When you no longer care about mattering or impressing others, you can operate in the gift of faith with greater authority and power. God can use you in powerful and in tremendous ways. When I, and it took me a while to get here, and it's a jar I got to bring back to God all the time, but when I realized that I, I didn't actually matter, that I'm already dead, I found it made me bolder. And I'm no longer giving myself outs when I'm taking steps of faith. You know, people would come and they would have problems, they would 
need God to move and intervene in their life in a powerful and a tremendous way. They would come in a real crisis needs and sick people would be brought before me as a, as a preacher and a pastor. And I lay my hands on them and I'd be like, God, if it be your will, I built fail safes into my prayer and into my ministry so that if it went sideways, you know, God was the one tumbling under the wheels of the bus, not me. If it went sideways, I, I, I wouldn't look bad. I, I didn't want to look bad. I don't want to get out there and be all bold and have it not happen. And who wants to look like, who wants to look like a loser that, that didn't get it right? Now I don't care. I, I, I can't point to a single experience, but it was a cumulative effect of multiple things and God working on my heart by his spirit. And now I don't care. Now when people come before me that are in crisis and need and sick, I, I command in the name of Jesus like the apostles did. I speak with an expectation that God is going to answer. And, and people are like, well, what, what if he doesn't? It's not my problem. What, what, if, what, if God doesn't, what if God doesn't do what you said? It's, it's, not, it's not my problem. I'm, won't people think you're a moron? Won't, won't it hurt your reputation? Like, what, what if they don't get healed? I'm dead. I, I don't matter. It's not my name on the line. I'm not praying my name. I'm not proclaiming anything about me. When I get up and I preach about the kingdom of God and the power of the gospel and and the sermon is a bust, I haven't said a, th- a single thing about myself. It's all about Jesus. I'm just some guy who's a conduit for God's word and will to flow through into another human life because that's how God has chosen to do it. None of this is about me. None of this is for me. No amount of people getting the Holy Ghost, getting baptized, getting set free is to pad my resume as if somehow I did it. I didn't forgive a single person of their sins when I baptized them. When they received the Holy Ghost when I prayed, I didn't give them the Holy Ghost. When someone gets healed through the laying on of my hands, I didn't heal them. Jesus did. I had no part to play in it other than I was a willing and obedient participant in the demonstration of the power of his word. Also, when you realize you don't matter, you stop competing with other people. There's no more ego. God releases power and the gifts of the Spirit when you're no longer concerned with being better than somebody else. Impressing anyone else. Because when you're giving God the jar of a crucified life, when you've crucified your ambition to the cross, all you want to do is serve people and please Jesus. And if someone does better, praise God. If someone gets an opportunity that you don't, praise God. If someone gets the credit for something that you actually did, well, all the glory goes to God because you're not interested in impressing anyone else. You just want to serve people and please Jesus. Here's another thing I've learned. When when you give God the jar of a crucified life, you have increased presence and focus when serving people. 
Because when you're dead, when you've offered God the jar of a crucified life and crucified ambition, you don't think about yourself when you're with other people. You're thinking about them. You're thinking about their needs and their desires and what God is trying to do and their life in that moment. It's like you've, you've gone into your head and all of the little insecurity voices, all of the, you know, the, the proud voices, you've got the volume knob on those voices turned all the way to zero. And when those voices of insecurity or pride or ego or self-assessment are silenced in your head, you can be entirely in the moment and focused on the needs of other people. You're not worried about coming up with a witty response. You're not listening for a comeback. You're listening to them. And this means increased compassion because you're focused entirely on others. You'll see people with greater empathy. People will no longer owe you anything because they aren't projects. But there are people that Jesus wants to help save and touch. If, if you in ministry and in leadership feel like when you do something for somebody else that they now owe you, there's a good chance you may need to crucify some stuff in your life. Because someone who is giving God the jar of a crucified life will give and be with people with no strings attached. No strings attached. You're not looking to get anything out of it for yourself. The other thing that I have learned that when you give God this jar is, is you'll be able to minister to people with less wounds and hurts. Ministry can sometimes be a place where there are lots of wounds and lots of hurt. People can hurt you and they can mistreat you and they can say all kinds of things about you and you got to minister to them. And one of the things I've discovered is that when you don't matter anymore, when you've, when you've given up the desire to, you know, to, be, to be loved by the crowd, you'll save yourself a lot of the wounds and hurts of ministry that can make you bitter towards serving people. You'll be able to bring accountability into someone's life without fear. It's because when you're still flooded with thoughts of what if they leave, what if they stop giving, what if they don't come, what if they, what if they don't like me anymore, you're assessing constantly the threat level to you and then you act accordingly, which means that accountability and loving confrontation will happen on the basis of what's best for you and it's this constant balancing act. But when you're crucified with Christ, that's no longer the factor. The factor is how can I best serve this person? How can I have this tough conversation with this person in a way that is redemptive, that brings them to repentance, that brings them to positive change? And should they reject your advice? And should they go back into the world? And should they, you know, after you've poured into them, after you've served them, and after you've advised them, they completely reject the word of God that's been given, and they go out into the world and they make a wreck of their life. That can hurt. It can make you feel awful. But when you realize you don't matter, when you've given God the jar of a crucified life, you're not going to bear any ill will towards them. You will, with compassion, pray for God to help them. 
And when the prodigal comes home, you will have the attitude of the father and not the older brother. And you'll run and you'll gather them up and you'll restore them and you'll dust them off and you'll try to put them back into the same relationship with God that they had before and restore them back into the family of God because the one who has been lost is now has been found. And you won't worry about all the words said and the advice rejected and the hours that were seemingly lost because you weren't ever doing it for you. You were always doing it for Jesus and for that other person. Look, I, I get this is hard. This is the most difficult jar that you will bring to God in your entire life, leadership, and ministry. It's a jar that I have to struggle to bring to God every day. See, we're all pushing against cultural programming. We're all fighting against our own insecurities and our own pride. And we are all fighting the confusion of mistaking the desire to make a difference with the desire to be seen making a difference. But if we can rely on the Holy Spirit to help us overcome ourselves, the end result is God can use us. See, this summer, God broke me down and brought me to this place where I gave this jar to God once and for all. And I was like, Lord, none of this is about me. Beyond words, beyond acknowledging the truth of the statement, but really in my core, I don't matter. I am a tiny little cog in a very big machine. And I gain way more by God letting me be a part of this than what I could ever contribute. I, I don't matter, God. God worked on my heart. I was able to go on this amazing AYC trip and the Lord moved in a tremendous way. And then I went to a camp in Mississippi and I was exhausted. I was sick. I was battling illness. And normally I would be so afraid. I'd be afraid of failing. I'd be afraid of making a mistake. I'd be afraid of not performing well, but because God had been working on my heart, I just didn't care anymore. I mean, I cared about the people. Like, I had a burden for them, but I didn't care about me. I didn't matter. The last night of that camp, there was a paradigm shift in my life. As I watched 37 miracles unfold in a service, the stuff I had been praying to see up close was now happening right in front of me. And what was so amazing was I don't think I laid a hand on a single person who got healed. It was all of my brothers and sisters that were members of the Mississippi District ministry teams that were present. 37 miracles. I, I watched a man pull a a cast off of his leg that had fallen off of a ladder earlier that week, a girl that had had asthma and a, a, a congenital heart defect that couldn't stand for any more than a few moments, ran around the room giving praise to God. A young lady that had struggled with suicidal ideation and self-harm, not only did God heal her, but she said she looked at her arms and the scars that were there disappeared. I wept in my and I cried in my in my room because I was like, 
God, I've, I've seen you on display in such a tremendous way. And I felt the Lord speak to my heart and be like, now you get it. When you stop, when you just stop trying to make yourself look good, when you stop trying to show people that you matter, that's when you actually do. When you stop trying to promote yourself so people can see how good you are, God will use you in greater capacity. He'll trust you with his power because you're not going to use the power of the gospel for your own gain.